Well, hey guys, good morning. Again, good morning. It's great to see you guys. Hey, uh, I'll ask you to go ahead and, uh, and find your seat. And uh, if you'll look around somewhere near you, find your bulletin and reach inside, take out your message notes and your connection card. And uh, today we're going to be picking up the story of Joseph in Genesis chapter 43. So if you'd like to follow along in your own Bible or maybe your smartphone or your, your tablet, you're welcome to do that. Genesis 43 verses 1 through 15. And uh, let me just say this too. If you're here today and you don't have a copy of the Bible of your own, we'd love to give you one. So on your way out today, if you'll just go by the information table, you'll see a couple stacks of Bibles, I think, one on each end. Just pick one up and take it with you. It's our free gift to you. And then um, also, uh, if you're a first-time guest with us, like we said in the welcome video, be sure to pick up a free copy of our book, Unshakable, Standing Strong When Things Go Wrong. So uh, I came to church a little nervous today, honestly. Not about the game, not about the, the big game tonight. I feel, feel pretty good about that. We play our game, Broncos play their game, uh, we win, maybe by a lot. But... Um, on my Facebook page yesterday, this uh, little blurb kept showing up. It was like a pre, uh, pre-prepared type thing where um, it says something about church and Jesus are more important than the Super Bowl, which we absolutely know that at Rocky River Church, right? But there was something about every time your pastor makes a point, you should, you should dump Gatorade on him. Um, so I'm a little nervous, and I came in this morning, there's Gatorade back on the table in the office lobby, I'm, I'm not sure what's up with that, I'm just glad there are no doors right behind me, that I don't have to be watching what's at my back, Darby, you, uh, you protect me on this side, and Brian, you make sure that nobody flanks me over here, if we're going to dump, dump, uh, Gatorade, let's do that after baptism at the 1115 service today, and uh, we can fight about it too. Just kidding. I- I'm excited to be picking up our story again this morning uh, in, uh, in Genesis, dealing with Joseph. And uh, just to kind of catch you up a little bit, to let you know where we are, because Things really take a transition in his story and his life today. And I want to make sure that that you're right here with us. Um, In Genesis 42, the previous chapter, there's there's a transition and a time of testing and trials that's going on in Joseph's life and the life of his his father and his brothers. If If you remember... The, the story switches from being in Egypt where it's, it's, it's been for, for some time now. And it goes back to Canaan. And it's to show us that there is indeed this famine that's going on in that whole region, maybe the whole world as far as we know. And for these people, as far as they were concerned, it included the whole world. But there's, there's a, a famine in Egypt that stretches at least all the way back to Canaan, which is where Joseph and Jacob and his family are from. The only place, listen, the only place that has any food at all is Egypt. 
And the reason that there's food and bread in Egypt is because God's hand is in all of this. Listen, let me, let me tell you guys, there's no such thing as fate. There's no such thing as karma. There's no such thing as just luck, blind luck, dumb luck, any of, any of those things. We live in a world where God is sovereign and God has a plan for the world. And just because we can't see how all of the dots connect in our lives and in the world doesn't mean that things are just happening. Things are happening according to God's plan. Thousands of years ago when Joseph lived and right now today. So God's hand is in this famine. He has brought Joseph through circumstances that we couldn't have imagined weeks ago when we got started in the story. But through his circumstances, um, the good in his life and the bad in his life, God has brought Joseph into Egypt. And this boy who was a slave is now the prime minister. He's the governor. He's the one with the famine plan. He, he's the one that um, is now giving out the food. One day in the bread line, Joseph sees his brothers. They don't recognize him. They don't know it's him. As far as they know, when they sold him into slavery 20 plus years ago, jo Joseph is dead. They, they don't even think about him anymore. Again, as far as they're concerned, he's gone. I'm not saying they're happy about it, but that's the way they see it. So they're, they're not looking for him. Now, probably what has happened is that Joseph has gotten word, hey, foreigners are now coming to Egypt to buy food. And along the route to come into Egypt, they would have had people, um, officials, probably likely it was soldiers, who were seeing who these people were and where they were coming from. And they probably got word to Joseph, hey, there are some people coming in from Canaan, your hometown. Joseph was probably looking for them in the bread line. He recognized his brothers. It's, it's a very dramatic experience. Joseph has held one of his brothers hostage, and he's holding him until his other brothers go home, get the youngest son, his youngest brother, Joseph's younger brother, Benjamin, to bring him back. Now before sending them home, hang with me. We'll get in the text here in just a minute. I just feel like I gotta catch up. Darby, right? So he sends enough grain and bread to last them probably several months. But he says to them, you will not see my face if you come back for more food and you don't have your youngest brother. So the boys go home. They tell Jacob everything that's happened. They told them about this mysterious Egyptian leader that's back in Egypt. And if they want more food, that's fine. They can come back. But they have to take Benjamin with them. And oh, by the way, they've kept Simeon, our brother, your son. And they're not going to give him back until we come back with Benjamin. That was Jacob's moment to show his faith and trust in God. Listen, guys, he's not been a good father. 
We've, we've seen that for a few weeks, especially in Genesis 37 and the way he placed his sons off of each other. He placed favorites with them. He's not been a good father, but he has an opportunity. All, all these years later, 25 plus years later, he has an opportunity to turn the tide on that and to show that he has faith in God, to, to step up and be the patriarch, to be the father that, that we're looking for him to be. But instead, he just crumbles. And he digs in his heels and he says, My son Benjamin will never go with you back to Egypt. You're, you're not taking him with you. Why is he so adamant that Benjamin stay behind? Well, all of these brothers, Joseph included, there's 12 of them in all, one father, but at least four mothers. And at one time, they all lived together. And even though Joseph at one time was the youngest brother, he was the favorite son of Jacob's favorite wife. Rachel gave Jacob two sons. And as far as Jacob knows, Joseph, the the other son of Rachel is dead. And so because he prized those two sons above all of his other sons, he was unwilling to do anything that might bring about Benjamin's death. So he dug in his heels and he wouldn't send him. And things just kind of sit right there for a few weeks, if not several months, because we don't know how much time goes by between chapter 42 and 43, when they get back with the grain and then when they eat all the grain up. But that's where we pick up the story. If you guys are still awake, let's dive right in. Genesis 43. Verse 1 says, Now the famine was still severe in the land. Probably not what Jacob is hoping for. What I think Jacob is hoping for is probably what most of us would be hoping for in that situation. He's probably thinking, maybe if I just give this thing enough time, maybe there's enough food that the boys brought back from Egypt that we can just wait this famine out. Maybe it will come to the point where I don't even have to face this hard decision of whether or not I'm really going to send my son Benjamin to Egypt with my sons to try to get us more bread. He's probably thinking, maybe I won't even have to make this decision. Now listen, Jacob is not a great example of faith, but do you think he's probably back home praying about this? Wouldn't you think he is? I, I would think he is. And he's probably praying about that famine, maybe the way you are praying about your famine today. He's probably praying, Lord, please take this famine away. Please take this famine away so that I don't have to make the decision to send my son Benjamin down to Egypt. Lord, please take this famine away so that I don't have to lose potentially one more son. Lord, please take this famine away because it's really hard. Lord, please bless me and take this famine away. You ever prayed like that over something? Lord, please take this disease away from me. Please take this hardship away. Lord, please supernaturally just 
do something in my marriage so that I don't have to go to counseling or I don't have to make some kind of hard choice or some kind of hard decision in my life. You could say that if God had taken the famine away, it would have probably been a blessing for Jacob. But Jacob didn't know what God knows. He didn't know that if Jacob will just face this hard place in his life, if he'll just trust him, there's an even greater blessing on the other side of this famine and this hardship. What he had no idea of is that if all of his sons end up in Egypt, there's going to be this great revealing where Joseph reveals to his brothers that he's not just the prime minister and the governor, but he's the brother that they sold into slavery 20 plus years ago. And there's going to be this great reconciliation. And then Jacob and his whole family are going to end up in Egypt. And not just in the margins of Egypt, but they're going to end up in the land of Goshen where there's plenty, where their family never has to worry about a famine again. But he doesn't know that's common. You know, one of the life lessons I think that you can find here is that sometimes we pray that God will take something bad out of our lives, that he'll, he'll um, take some trial, some sickness, some disease, some hard season of our lives, that he'll just take it away. And the reason that he doesn't is because he knows that on the other side there's a bigger blessing than just removing that hardship. So the famine is still going on, verse 2. So when they had eaten all the grain they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, go back and buy us a little more food. Now he knows the deal, right? What's the deal? Don't come back without the youngest brother. He said, if you come back without your youngest brother, you won't even see my face. Why does Joseph want the brother to come back? Because he wants to make sure that these brothers who were bad men, now they're saying they're honest men, but they were bad men when they sold Joseph into slavery. He wanted to make sure that they haven't killed Benjamin or done something with him like sell him into slavery. He's putting these men to the test. He wants to find out what they are really all about. All right, go back and buy us more food. But Judah said to him, remember who Judah is? He's the, young, or, or the oldest brother. Of all the brothers, he's the oldest. But Judah said to him, the man warned us solemnly, you will not see my face again unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother along with us, we will go down and buy food for you. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. Because the man said to us, you will not see my face again unless your brother is with you. Guys, can you imagine how tense it was uh, or, or that it's been the last several weeks, if not the last several months, as they watch day by day, week by week, month by month perhaps, they watch the food supply go down? Now, in that time, in that culture, it, it should be the same today, but unfortunately, it's not. Maybe, maybe there was a time in our country when things were like this. But back then, you didn't talk back to your father. You didn't say things to him that were disrespectful. 
If you remember early in Genesis 42, Jacob came to his sons and he said, guys, are y'all just going to sit here and look at each other till we completely run out of food and starve? Go to Egypt where I hear they have bread and get us some and come back. They would never say anything like that to him. So they're sitting there kind of twiddling their thumbs, looking at each other like, man, we're starving. We're running out of food every day. And Jacob hasn't said a word about it. He, he's living in denial. The, the brothers and Jacob's sons, they, they can't really say anything to him. That they can't, they can't challenge him. Think about how Benjamin felt. I mean, Benjamin might have wanted to go down with him. He, he might have been thinking, Dad, we're starving here. What's the difference if I go to Egypt and die or we stay right here and we all starve to death? You know, let, let me go with them. We, we, don't, we don't know exactly, but he's caught between a rock and a hard place, isn't he? Things are tough. Well, finally, Jacob realizes, or at least he comes to a senses to the degree that he says, all right, guys, go and buy food. And that was Judah's opportunity to stand up and say, Dad, this is what's up. You've, you've been living with your head in the sand. You, you've been living in denial. You've got to come back into reality and face the issue. The issue is that man is not going to let us have food. He knows we have a youngest brother. He wants to see him, and he's not going to give us food, and he's not going to give an, us an audience until we go back and take him with us. Every person needs at least one person who will tell them what's up. I have people in my life like that. Do you? You need someone like a Judah who can stand up and say, listen, you've got to face reality. You've got to stop living in this dream world that you're in, we're all dying here, yes, but you know the reality is that we can't go back to Egypt without Benjamin. And I'm sure Judah is not only thinking about himself and his own family he needs to provide for, but he's thinking about his, his brothers and their families. He's probably thinking if we go back to Egypt, we could all die. But dad, you, you know what's right here. You know what has to be done. Even though it's a hard decision that you don't want to make, we've got to go back, but we have to take Benjamin with us. And this is how Jacob responded. Jacob asked, why did you bring this trouble on me by telling the man that you had another brother? See how he does this? He, it's almost like he blames his sons for it. Why did you even tell them that you had another brother? And of course, these guys are just answering questions. They had no idea that the guy would, uh, this mysterious Egyptian leader would demand that the youngest brother come back with him. They had no idea that was going to happen. But here's, here's, what, here's what I want you to catch. What Jacob is basically saying to them is, why didn't you tell the man a lie? Why didn't you just keep your mouth shut? 
If you, if you remember, Jacob's name means deceiver. And his natural default in his life is whenever he's in a tight spot, is he manipulates, lies, and deceives. And it's almost as though he's saying to his sons, I taught you better than this. I taught you how to manipulate. I taught you how to lie. Why didn't you just do that? Moms, dads, I'm going to give you this just to, on the side, kind of for free. Be careful what you teach your kids. Dads, be careful what you teach your kids. And you know, a lot of the lessons that we teach our kids aren't the kind where we just sit down with them and say, okay, I want to teach you some things. Like, I would imagine that Jacob never sat his sons down and said, okay, guys, um, whenever you're in a tight spot and you don't know how to get out of it, you can't think of anything else to do, lie about it like you've seen your daddy do. He probably didn't have that conversation with them. But they have seen their dad in the position, um, in circumstances where that's exactly what he did. And so through example, they learned how to do the wrong thing. And they are deceivers. They, They are deceivers. They are manipulators. And the best example of that is years ago when they sold Joseph into slavery, they took his coat of many colors that Dad gave Joseph, and they knew he would recognize it. They tore it into pieces, rubbed it into the blood of an animal they had killed, took it home, gave it to his dad, and told him that a wild animal must have torn him apart and eaten him alive. Joseph is dead. And those sons are doing what they learned from their father, except that something has changed. I'll I'll get to that in a minute, but They've been living up to the example that dad sat for them. What are you teaching your kids? Are you teaching them the right things? I'm not asking if you're perfect. Lord knows none of us are. Especially me, I'm not perfect. What are you teaching them on the weekends? Are you, are you teaching them that, that football is more important than church? You know, when I was a kid growing up, my dad was not a preacher. But when I woke up on Sunday mornings, I never had to ask my parents if we were going to church or not. I knew the answer to that question. We were going. And I didn't have to ask. As a kid or as an adult living at home, If I had to go or if I could stay home, I knew the answer to that question. 
Mom and dad were going to church, and so was I. My parents' theory on this was, um, I I don't let the kids get to decide if we're going to pay our family bills or not. The kids don't get to decide if they're going to go to school on Monday or not. They don't have a choice in whether or not they brush their teeth or what time they go to bed. My mom and dad's theory was, I know what's best for them as far as brushing their teeth, going to school, doing their homework, and other things like that. I know better than they do. They're doing those things, and they're going to church too. Samson, I can remember being a kid going to the very first Winston. That's back when... um, It was okay to drink and smoke in NASCAR. Now it's okay to drink, but you can't, you can't smoke. But back then you could. They called it the Winston. And I think they ran that thing about 1 o'clock on Sundays. I had an uncle that was a North Carolina Highway Patrolman. He would drive his patrol car to church over in West Charlotte. Church got out right at 12 o'clock on Sunday morning because if it didn't end right at 12 o'clock, the deacons would be standing at the back doors like bouncers looking at their watch like, we got to go, preacher. There's going to be a mad rush for the door here. At 12 o'clock, we were in that patrol car headed toward the racetrack. But there was never a question of, hey, are we going to go to church before we go racing? Yep, going to church. What, what are you teaching your kids? What, what are you teaching them as a priority? A, a, a good friend of mine, a good friend of mine, one of my best friends for years and years, he's at the Super Bowl today, or he will be tonight, tonight here, afternoon, if you're in San Fran. He paid $5,000 for each ticket. He bought him and his son one. Um, He bought airfare like on Tuesday, so I have no idea what he spent for airfare, but I do know that he had three layovers before he got there. When it's all said and done, they'll have somewhere between $16,000, $18,000 in the Super Bowl. Now, he's my friend. I'm not going to tell you who he is. But because he's my friend, I'm going to talk about him. That's the same guy that can't get up on Sunday morning because he's too tired and it's too much a hassle to bring his wife and his kids to church. Even though we have 8.30, 9.45, and 11.15 service. And I've told him, hey, look, if you don't like me or my preaching... Here's, I've I've given him a dozen churches he could go to in our area. I'll bet he he don't come to church three times a year. His kid is a great kid and he is a stud at sports. Doesn't matter what the sport is. He can throw a tight spiral, about 40 yards He can hit three-pointers. He can grab the top of the net. He's like 12 years old, 13 years old. Great pitcher. 
He didn't know anything about Jesus. So his dad never has sat down with him and said, but I just want to tell you something. Uh, sports, Super Bowl, basketball, all that's more important than Jesus. He never told him that with his words, but he's told him that in the way he lives his life. And so if his son grows up and he's the next Cam Newton, well, if he is, I'll probably go to the Super Bowl one day with them because we are great friends until he hears this sermon. I, he's not going to hear this sermon. He don't. Um. <laughs> if this kid grows up and plays college ball, professional ball, but he dies and goes to a sinner's hell. His father is raised a failure. What are you teaching your kids? I'm not knocking going to the Super Bowl, by the way. The only reason I'm up here this morning preaching and Donnie's not is because I didn't have five grand for the ticket. <laughs> but I would be here the next week. My friend won't. Where will you be next Sunday? They replied, verse 7. Now, now all the brothers have got into the conversation because they can tell Judah needs some help. Dad's got him pinned down, and so they, they come in to help. The man questioned us closely about ourselves and our family. Is your father still living, he asked us. Do you have another brother? We simply answered the questions. How were we to know he would say, bring your brother down here. I would say not only do you need someone, a person in your life to do life with to show you what's in your blind spots, you need a team of people. You need a group of people around you that can, that can help you do life. Verse 8, then Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy along with me and we will go at once so that we and your children and our children may live and not die. Listen, I, I want you to listen to this closely. I myself will guarantee his safety. You can hold me personally responsible for him. You know what this is in Judah's life? This is change. If I do not bring him back to you and set him here before you, I will bear the blame before you all of my life. I, I don't know what's happened to Judah through the years, but he's changing. Th this is not the same guy that we hear from 20 plus years ago who looks at Joseph and that coat of many colors coming towards them and plots out a plan with his brothers to kill him. This is a man who has remorse. This is a man who knows that he hasn't done everything right. In fact, not only is he not perfect, but he's done some horrendous things in his life. But he's changing. He feels responsible for Joseph because he is responsible partly for Joseph. And so now he's saying, I will stand in for Benjamin. If something happens to him, you can hold me personally 
responsible for it. Let, let me give you this, this lesson in life. I don't know who this is for, but give people room to change. Give people in your life room to change. You're not the same person you used to be. You've grown. You've changed. God has given you grace. You have to be willing to give other people grace and give them room to grow and to change. I don't want to make today all about football, but I was talking to a couple of friends yesterday. We were talking about the, the game that's coming up tonight and, um, and those kind of things. We were talking about Cam Newton and I hope he wins MVP and, and those kind of things. And we talked about Cam when he first came into the league. I've loved Cam from day one. It used to drive me crazy to see him sitting over on the sideline on the bench with a towel draped over his head and you know he's pouting. Well, he's always been a winner everywhere he's ever been. He knew how to win. He had to learn how to lose. He had to learn how to be a leader. The team had to be patient with him, his coaches, the owner. Everybody had to be patient. The fans, you had to give him some room to grow. Now, that Cam Newton that we had three, four years ago is not the same guy that won offensive MVP and league MVP last night. He's not the same leader that's leading our team into the Super Bowl tonight. He's changed. He's grown up. You have to give people room to grow. You have to give your husband or your wife some room to grow, to make mistakes. Ladies, you've got to give us guys lots of room to grow up. There's a big maturity difference between men and women. You have to give your kids room to grow and make mistakes. To learn from their mistakes. To learn from evaluated life experiences. Give people some grace. Give them room to grow. He says in verse 10, As it is, if we, had not, if we had not delayed, we could have gone and returned twice. Waiting on things never makes it better. Verse 11, just a few more verses here. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be, then do this. And I hate that. That sounds so wooden. Because he's a powder. Jacob is a powder. Anybody in here a powder? Anybody? How many of you are liars? Because I know I'm not the only powder in this room. Jacob's a powder. I'm sure he did not say, if it must be, then do this. He said, well, fine. If we got to, then I, all right, well, here's what do then. He, he's pouting about it. He, he's mad about this thing. Put some of the best products of the land in your bags and take them down to the man as a gift. Remember that Jacob is a deceiver and a manipulator. He knows the power of a good bribe. A little balm and a little honey, some spices and myrrh, some uh, pistachio nuts and almonds. These are things that you couldn't find in Egypt. They would be especially rare during a famine. Take double the amount of silver with you for you must return the silver that was put back into the mouths of your sacks. Perhaps it was a mistake. Take your brother and 
uh, take your brother also and go back to the man at once. In other words, don't put it off anymore. And may God Almighty, which is El Shaddai, God Almighty, the one who provides, is what the name means. May he grant you mercy before the man so that he will let your brother and Benjamin come back with you. As for me, if I am bereaved, I am bereaved. All right, since you're not a powder, do you like to get the last word in? Any of those? All right, okay. Well, have you noticed, either in yourself or in others, people who have to have the last word, that very often they not only get the last word in, but they usually say a little too much too? Have you noticed? I saw that, Wanda. Jacob said too much. Think about how awesome this would be if, if he would have said, all right, guys, here's what we're going to do. We're going to trust in the Lord. I don't, know, I don't know what all this is about. I haven't been the perfect father. I've not even been a good father at times. But I love you guys and I love the Lord. I love Joseph and I miss him. I've grieved for him all these years. I love Benjamin and I love Simeon. Let's pray about this and just trust God that he's going to work this out for us. Let's just follow him. Let's let him connect the dots. But he didn't. It, it, it kind of does. But then when he puts those last few words on there, and if I'm bereaved, I'm bereaved. That's a very wooden way of saying, I don't have any hope with this. I've already resigned myself that I'm going to be the father of three dead sons, Joseph, Simeon, and now Benjamin. And his last few words to them in this moment before they have to make this 300-mile walking journey back to, to Egypt, the, the words that will ring in these boys' ears all the way to Egypt is... I have no hope. It's a lost cause. And what's disappointing about this is that somewhere along the way, Jacob has made the decision that he's not going to face life with faith. He's going to face it with fear. And so what has happened is, listen to me, he, he does what comes naturally to us as human beings. He defaulted to himself. He, he has, over the years, trusted himself and not God. And what it has done over the course of his life is it's made him a shell of the patriarch we once saw you know, years ago, this is, the same, this is the same Jacob who wrestled with an angel at Bethel. This is the same Jacob who faced down his brother Esau and his armies because he put his faith and trust in God. But along the way, over the, the last years, through grief and depression and other things, he is just 
He has trusted himself and his bribes and his deceiving and his manipulating tactics and not God. And not God. So the men took the gifts and doubled the amount of silver and Benjamin also. They hurried down to Egypt and presented themselves to Joseph. And that's where we'll pick up next Sunday. Who who are you trusting with your life? Will you be honest with me about that for a minute? And and not not even just being honest with me, but, but be honest to the Lord about it. In, in, in your life, in whatever the big thing is you're facing right now, who are you defaulting to? Are you trusting yourself out of this financial spot? Are you trusting um, yourself and your wife out of this spot in your marriage? Or are you trusting God? It's your decision. But trusting yourself, it'll just leave you empty in the end. Trust Jesus. Let's stand together and let me pray for us. just with every head bowed and every eye closed. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your word, for the life lessons that we're learning from Joseph and and his story. Lord, I pray that if not already, by the end of these passages, by the end of this story, we would realize that you are sovereign. That means that you are in control. Just like you were in control of the famine, just like you were in control of Joseph's life, even after he's sold into slavery and he faces impossible situations, you're still working in those impossible situations and making things happen because with you, nothing is impossible. And we're told that in the scriptures again and again. But Lord, though many of us have heard that, not all of us have believed it. So, Lord, I pray that today would mark that change in our lives where we 
we're going forward, no matter what we're facing, a decision with a job, a relationship, something we're having to deal with our children or family on, something we just can't seem to, to figure out on our own, I pray that our default would be to have faith in you, to trust you, to believe that no matter what happens, you are in control. And so we're going to be with you no matter what. Jesus, it's in your great name that we pray. And those who agreed said, amen. amen. Hey, I love you guys. And uh, I'm excited about the, the game today. Listen, we're not going to close with a worship song. We're going to close with fun song. You probably already have some idea about what that might be. Because Jeremy asked me this week, he said, look, man, I know we did Sweet Caroline the other day. Can we do it just one more time? And Jeremy, I understand that because, like, it might be a while before we get to sing this again. And I, I was standing in my closet this morning taking my Panthers jersey down off the hanger, and I thought, Lord, what am I going to wear next Sunday? It's funny you say that because when, I, when we were doing worship planning, I told Jeff, I said, you know, man, I'm not superstitious. But, and Jeff said, well, you wear the same shirt every Sunday during the football season. I said, well, yeah, you got a point. So I'm with you. And next yeah. Sunday, I don't know what the heck I'm going to wear. I don't either. But... If you guys will, I want to invite you to indulge us as we participate in my superstition. All right. We, sweet we, we can do that. We, keep pounding. Go Panthers. All right. Love you guys. Have a great week.